Magandang araw, podmates! Howie Severino muli na nagpapaalala na nakakatalino ang mahabang attention span. Ang kasama natin ngayon ay kung saan sanang nakagala sa Pilipinas bilang isang food storyteller at enthusiast. Siya si Erwan Husaf na kumakailan nagawara ng prestigyosong James Beard Foundation Award para sa kanyang food content sa social media. Good morning, Erwan, and congratulations! Good morning! Thanks very much! Erwan, how big a deal is the James Beard Award? The James Beard is an award that, it, I mean, he's, he's an emblematic figure in the culinary scene in the U.S. And when you think about food awards in general, most of the time it's uh, restaurants or it's chefs. Um, and you have a few organizations worldwide that are really seen as kind of like the best of the best. So you have 50 Best Organization, which is mainly focused on chefs and restaurants. And then you have the Michelin um, guide as well was again based mostly on restaurants. James Beard is the one of the only I think prestigious award bodies that recognizes um, not only restaurants but also restaurateurs, um, food media people in terms of book writers and authors and uh, food media. And so it is probably the biggest when it comes to food media and the food scene. Um, and so it's it is a big deal. And so when I when I won, I was kind of like freaking out. Uh, even when I got nominated, I was freaking out. And I realized it's kind of like, you know, the the Academy Awards where you say, oh, you know, Academy Award nominated actor, even if you've, you haven't won, just being nominated is prestigious enough. And so that's, that's the James Beard. And I was like, so yeah, it was, it was it was a really great milestone for us to reach. Well, your category, no, the one you won in was for so, for your social media content. I must be that must be one of the newer categories, no? Because of course, restaurants have been honored by food awards uh, uh, forever, no? But social media that must be really new, no, for them. So you've been posting all kinds of uh, food content. What in particular did they take note of? Well, I think social media is, is such a new platform in general, and it was great to kind of see it included in more serious conversations. Um, I think when YouTube first popped up and Instagram first popped up, a lot of the times it's seen as a hobby. It's seen as something that's amateurish. But then now you see these massive legacy media brands and brands in general all jumping on social media. So it is a very kind of serious platform. And that's how I tend to use it. So for the longest time, obviously, it's personality driven in the, in the beginning. And that's what I did in the beginning over the last couple of years is really build the persona and build a following online based on my personality and my interests and passions and as i got older you know it started becoming less about me and more about kind of like the stories and the products and the people that we met and so i think they took note of the fact that it wasn't air one centric in any way it was very much food centric and james beard and and the conversation around food in the u.s in particular Nowadays, is all about food ways, it's all about heirloom products, it's all about kind of like ancient agriculture and all these different things. And these are all verticals that we tell stories in. And I think that's what kind of like drew them to what we were doing. What was your training? Did you get training in, in any food science or art? I always called myself just a home cook. Um, in terms of my training, so I, I went to school for um, business management and then I specialized in luxury brand management and in restaurant management. Uh, restaurant experience management and then after that i did uh, a few jobs but all in the food and beverage industry uh for about a couple of years before coming back to the philippines 
So this was in various countries uh, in Europe. So I worked in Paris. I worked in Greece. I worked in Thailand, Vietnam, China, Russia uh, before coming back to the Philippines. And now you're almost exclusively focused on Philippine food and culture. Uh, yes. So Philippine food and culture. And the more we kind of sit with it, the more we think about it. I also would love to see how we can bridge the gap with Southeast Asian food culture in general. Um, you look at most continents in the world, like Europe is very kind of connected. Um, there's a lot of food events happening in different countries in Europe. The US is not, is not a continent, but obviously it's big enough to be one. There's a lot of cross uh, boundary sharing when it comes to the different states in the US. Same things for South America and Latin America. Southeast Asia has always felt very disconnected, even though our cultures are very similar. Our languages are very different, so that's probably one of the of the reasons why I'm personally seeing a shift now in terms of fashion and culture and uh, music, where Southeast Asian countries are starting to come together. And I would love to kind of see that with food. So I, I wouldn't say exclusively to the Philippines, but currently, yes, our main focus is the Philippines. And eventually, we want to see how we can kind of develop a stronger Southeast Asian food culture. You've produced a wide variety of content. No, I mean on various platforms, but. My own personal favorites are your long form content because uh, I I do the same kind of thing, but you know, on television. And in particular, you really you do deep dives on what seem to be like common food items or common aspects of our culture that have a lot more depth than what people assume. Just for example, your your you you did a series on tubers in particular, ube. And then you did a really nice piece on artisanal salt. Food actually is a window for you to try to explain culture as well, right? I watched uh, your piece on wedding rituals in, or a wet, particular wedding ritual in, in a mountain province, which, which didn't have you as a host or, or narrator. Anyway, my question is, what made you produce those? I mean, they're hard. I do long form and I know I know how hard it is as opposed to a lot of the short stuff you do where you don't have to travel. You're, you're kind of you're just in a kitchen doing kind of quickie videos. A lot of your content now is you, you go out, you explore provinces, and, you know, say a lot of things that uh, maybe a lot of people don't know about yet. Yeah. So th there's a book I read uh, like decades ago and it's funny that this one phrase stuck with me. It was, uh, look around you, you're surrounded by um, billionaires. And uh, one of the examples that they had was, uh, you know, the plastic wrap around your shoelace, the tip of your shoelace. They were, they were saying, I don't know who, what that guy's name is anymore, but that guy was a billionaire. And I found that so fascinating that all these little things around you, you think, okay, you know, you look at the shoe, the shoe is super interesting. There's a brand to it. You might be attracted to it, but you don't think of the guy who who invented the plastic wrap around the tip of the shoelace. But once you know that fact, it's like, oh, crazy. Yeah, you know, it makes you think about so many things. And so that's why I kind of like to approach common things and the mundane, because I, I think they're so interesting. I think we just take them for granted because we're so used to seeing them. So something like salt sounds so boring to everyone because it's something you use every day. It's something you grew up with. It doesn't look like a luxury item, but then once you kind of go into it, um, there's so many facets and varieties of salt and it becomes really interesting. So that's kind of like why I like that. I think it's just more of a, that's just a storytelling approach of usually when you teach something, when you educate someone about something that they know so intimately and that they've known their whole life 
and you completely change their perspective on it. It's just so much more powerful as a storytelling vehicle. On the other aspect of things, I think, I think food tells you so much about a culture in general. First thing I do in any country I visit is, is eat. And even if I'm not speaking the same language as the people in front of me, through the food and through the ingredients that are there and through the understanding of the environment that I'm in, I think I can tell a lot about a culture, about its history, about its um, you know, about its people. And, you know, I'm, I'm currently reading Tigafetta's uh, diary on Magellan coming into the Philippines again, and I've reread it a few times. And every interaction that Magellan had with local Filipinos was started with food. And it's just a way to start a conversation, right? So we have certain videos, like you mentioned, the Bontok wedding, or we did also a, a wedding for the Sama Bajaos or some, yeah, Sama Bajaos in Basilan. Uh, we feature the food as a vehicle for the story, but not it's not the focus of the video. It's really just to kind of give context to where we are. And I think that's really powerful. Going back to to salt in particular, let's 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 talk about that for for a couple of minutes. No, I did something that you don't really think about in a very deep way. But you went to Bohol and you told a story about a particular kind of artisanal salt. No, you asin tibuok, which Frankly, I'd, I had not heard of before. I knew there was artisanal salt, but this particular one, then you told the story of the family and and, and I was just amazed by the process, you know, how how long it is, how difficult for li relatively little reward, right? So what do you want people to take away from seeing uh, something like this? The salt, I, I like salt because it's, it's in everyone's table. Um, and so it's such a great starting point. The reason why we kind of took go, we took on this challenge to to tell the stories of all Filipino artisanal salts is it's because it's so politically charged. There's such a, an underlying political issue around salt, around how we insisted in the 1950s to blindly follow a rule from the World Health Organization and just implement it stupidly in the country without thinking about the repercussions on the salt industry without helping the salt farmers establish themselves enough to set up iodized, uh, iodine factories or ways to iodize their salts. Um, and so it's it's kind of like a lot of frustrations that you have about the country and doing business in the country and it kind of how sometimes things are implemented really quickly. I thought telling that story through salt was very just a soft way to kind of soft land certain messages. And I, what I liked about it, again, because anyone from someone that's extremely poor to someone that's extremely rich could find something like Asintibuok really interesting, right? Because it's so striking and it's something you can understand because it's salt. Another example is the tool tool from Guimaras. Like it's beautiful, it's square. And you put that in really rich people's houses, they grate it on top of a dulce de leche ice cream. But for people who are making them, they just press the salt down on rice and that's their ula, right? It has such a, a vast um, a vastness in terms of the story that you can tell. Um, and even that, it's because it's something that I think is really interesting because it's currently in process of being changed. You know, they're trying to amend the rules and all these things. And so I knew when we were trying to tell the story, the number one thing we started off on is 96, I think it's 96% of all salts in the Philippines are imported. And you just think of a, a fact like that and you're like, we have, well, how many islands do we have? I think every year we have like a, a few hundred more islands and you're telling me we can't produce any of our salt for local consumption. It's ridiculous. And so we started digging and we realized there was all these stupid rules. And so we were like, okay, how do we do this? Do we focus on 
you know, the salt beds of Pangasinan that everyone knows about. We go to Mindoro where they have the rock salt that everyone knows about. I'm like, no, we need to find something that's striking. And so that's why we found these really small artisanal salts because we tell the story of the people, the environment, but they're also beautiful and they're striking and they can, they, there's so much beauty to the hardship to make those salts. And a lot of people in the US and Australia would pay thousands of pesos uh, per kilo to get those salts. So there's, there's a real you know, rag to riches story within that salt itself. And so I just thought it was really kind of diverse and really colorful. Artisanal salt is not cheap uh, in the Philippines when you compare it to the you know common table salt, which you pointed out was, I think, 80 pesos versus something like 400, 500 pesos. What unit of measurement were you talking about there? I mean, was that per kilo or what per? Per kilo. Per kilo, okay, yeah. And then um, you said that in other countries, which also have artisanal salt, it's kind of par for the course, no? But for a lot of your viewers, you know, if it costs 80 pesos to buy salt in the grocery, why would why should they pay 400, 500 pesos for artisanal salt? I mean, I, I understand the cultural value of, you know, heritage or heirloom salt, but in terms of someone who eats, right? I mean, what difference does it make in terms of flavor? I mean, this artisanal salt, how does it enhance food? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's very, it, it's a great question because it's actually very different. Um, so I'm not going to get into the technicalities of it, but there's a massive food science background to, to all of this, right? Something like iodized salt that's extremely fine, where you to salt your steak before cooking it would penetrate the steak really quickly, hence drying out the meat when you're cooking it which is why when most restaurants cook with salt, they'll cook with two salts. There's a really fine, uh, fine flat flaked kosher salt, which coats the meat, but doesn't penetrate as fast. And then you sear it. And then once you're done, you use what they call a finishing salt, which is really kind of remains, keeps its texture and crunchiness when you kind of eat it. Um, and so the salts that we have in the Philippines all have very different applications in that same, in that same matter, right? So. Um, something like Asintibuak or the tultul from Guimaras has to be grated with a microplane to be able to use it and you use it as a finishing salt. Uh, the tultul from Guimaras is made with very highly selected driftwood um, and then they finish the salt with a smoky coconut cream and they cook that over light fires. All that enhances the flavor of it. Asintibuak is cooked in clay and is evaporated over hours, but their filtering process comes from coconut husks that are burnt over days and days and days. So all these little things have very subtle flavor differences. And why would you buy an 80 peso salt versus a, let's say a 400 peso salt? Obviously you, you wouldn't do that if you couldn't afford it, number one. Um, but it just shows that we have products in the Philippines that could be considered, you know, of high value. So today I can go to any store and buy a Malden sea salt here in the Philippines. But why would I buy Malden sea salt over a Sintibuok, right? It's because I didn't know about a Sintibuok. So our, our message was, is to try to preserve these cultural heirloom ingredients, but at the same time, for those people who can afford it, to financially support them by buying their product and hopefully reviving that industry, right? One of the reasons why it's so, it's so expensive, yeah, because it is, it takes a long, long time to make, but also it's because there's most of these salts, there's one or two families making it. Right. So obviously it's really expensive because there's, there's a scarcity to it, but our, one of our hopes was to try to motivate more families within that region, within that barangay to revive their whole industry there, you know, and, and, and hopefully 
the videos that we've done have kind of helped and, and pushed things in that direction. Yeah. Well, and, and speaking of which, there has been proposed legislation Correct. to preserve heirloom or artisanal salt, right? They're, they're looking, so it's past Congress, it's past Senate on a third reading, I believe. I, I could be wrong. Yeah. Um, but it's basically an amendment to us in law. And what they're amending is to carve out artisanal salts completely. So all artisanal salts will be allowed to be sold, will, made, will be made legal. So technically it's still illegal and it will be supported by the government with certain subsidies, hopefully. Um, and they will benefit from the geographical indication program of the government, uh, which means Guimaras mangoes is a specific species that are grown in Guimaras that can only be harvested and made in Guimaras and sold as such. So once you have that locality of Asintibuok is only from Barangay Albuquerque or uh, Albuquerque Bohol um, and can only be made and sold from there, it just uplifts that whole community that's based there. So I guess we could look forward to one day being able to access, you know, these artisanal salts in other places aside from their place of origin. <laughs> Right. So uh, hopefully, yeah. I mean, I mean, we're we're when once this is all legal, we'll try to figure out a way to kind of consolidate all the salt makers without involving middlemen or traders, and so that they have a storefront where they could kind of put their products forward. You've been to several places which are off the beaten track. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, Basilan. I mean, who, who goes there? I've been there as a journalist, right, to cover conflict which is one big reason why outsiders would go to a place like that but you went there you didn't you hardly ever you hardly even mentioned security or or conflict you were you were really highlighting the the local culture were you giving enough warning about the actual security risks in a place like that or or is it really that safe now we don't do these things lightly right so from the conversations that we had and the local communities that we talked to Specifically in Isabella de Basilan, which is a, it's its own, its own specific thing, right? And everyone we spoke to said, you know what? The last incident, I don't remember the exact figure, but it was like 13 years ago or something like that. Um, so it comes to the point where you kind of have to ask yourself, when can we start shedding that image? After the conversation, I felt confident enough that all I had to say was just contact the local tourism office to organize your trip. Don't come in there as a tourist with no itinerary and everything like that, make sure you talk to the local people first because um, they're the best ones to be able to tell you uh, whether something is safe or not. And um, yeah, I felt confident in saying that. Same for Tawi Tawi because the last piece of conflict that they, they've seen is like decades ago also, right? Uh, were I to go to Hulu or Marawi, I mean, we were we were planning to do Marawi recently and then obviously the bombings happening at, uh, at MSU. Uh, we would be a bit more delicate with you know telling people that maybe it's not necessarily something you travel to but we're there to still kind of document culture so i would it wouldn't stop like we're we're at a conflict zone or we're at a place that still had present issues it wouldn't necessarily stop me from going there but i wouldn't recommend like people to just blindly go there I'd be like if you really want to go you know be be very wary and careful but why why do you go to places like that you've done cavite negros i mean very safe places i mean you could easily just do that route right um you know do that established route but why why even go to places that i'm sure people were warning you about i mean you have a, you have a young family <laughs> why even 
you know, make that effort. I get frustrated sometimes with kind of like the monochromatic view that we have of Filipino food and culture. Um, the dishes, any, you know, any restaurants you go to in Manila, it's really always going to be Tagalog dishes. You have your kawali, you have your karekare, you have your mbutidos, you have your stegang, your bulalo, your tenola. I could, I could walk into a Filipino restaurant, not look at the menu and order because I know exactly what they would probably have, right? And so one of the reasons we do what we do is, is because there's such beauty with all the dishes that we have from Benguet to the mountain provinces, to Ifugao, all the way down to, you know, Maranao cooking, to Zambasul uh, style cooking and everything, the Moro cuisine. There's so much richness to our dish and uh, to our to our food history and food culture. Um, and the only way to kind of get those things out is by using the medium that is the most prevalent today, which is videos, right? So I feel like there's, there's a need to do it because if someone puts out a book today, great, but it doesn't talk to the generation of people who are online not reading cookbooks. Um, and so we, we feel it's important because it's a question of inclusivity, but it's also a question of our history and our culture as a people showcasing that diversity and and you can't tell the story of the philippines without telling the story of the moro people it's such a huge part of our culture that for the longest time was very much kind of squashed in and not spoken about well you know in a previous generation the people who did this kind of work were writers as you mentioned in one of your videos I th it was the one on silay negros now you mentioned doreen fernandez uh and her books no in particular i think um you you read tikim no which, you know, her treatment is similar to yours, actually, which is, of course, she loves food. She's a food enthusiast, but food is just a window into understanding something much larger, you know, culture, people, people, how people interact, the history of a uh, particular place. I just ask you about um, your style of documentation, because you mentioned um, earlier it was kind of Erwan-centric, right? And you said you've, you've kind of shifted uh, away from that, I guess. So you don't want because you, of course you don't also want to be stereotyped as just being that, right? You know, I mentioned earlier this uh, wedding ritual, this wedding in a mountain province. I found it fascinating. You were highlighting, you know, in particular mountain villages. They have their own unique um, practices. Uh, like I think in, in that one, there was like the Ibayo, the Ibayo tribe or the Ibayo village. You know? but there was no host there or no narrator, right? It was verite style. Correct. It was you're just letting the action unfold, and then you had interviews with the, you know, the the resource people, and then the you know the couple that was about to get married, and you know their whole their courtship, and how they, the man had to give firewood to the family, and if they didn't offer to pay for it, then that means the woman was interested. I found that really fascinating. But what was your influence in doing that style? That's kind of a classic documentary style. It's different from you know, the personality centered, blogging culture and world that we have now where it's all about the personality brand that had no none of your presence at all no not even your voice yeah um so I, I think even when i used to do hosted things it was a lot of the times i was just there as a guide right it was never about me it was always about the experience and you just need a voice to kind of guide you in, in the right direction um and i always tell people it's so easy for me to to do a travel video because then the cameras just follow me and I can just narrate. I can just talk about my experience. I'm, I'm, I'm eloquent enough to carry, uh, you know, uh, to explain what's happening, what I'm doing and how things taste. Um, the ultimate challenge is to be able to tell a story without a narrator, right? It's, 
it's always very difficult. And previously, we never really were able to do that because we didn't have enough people to interview. So it was a challenge for us because one, I, I don't want to be in every video because I don't think I shouldn't be in every video because they're, they're not my stories. And it's if I feel like if I'm in the video all the time, it takes away from the, the subject and the nature of the of, of what we're trying to talk about. When we started doing them, it was always very scary because for the longest time, you know, people would be like, yeah, but the, you know, you, you're Erwan Yusuf, you're the face of the video, people watch because of you. And that kind of ticked me off in a sense. And I was like, I hope people watch it because of the, the, the meat of the, the story and not me, right? Um, especially in the Philippines because it's such a celebrity driven culture. And so when we started doing them, we were freaked out. And then we saw that people actually watched. And I was like, okay, cool. So they're here for the, they're here for the actual subject. They're here for the actual story. For the Ibayo, I just, I just love that area. I love the Mouth Province. I love Ifugao. You know, it was a place that was never fully colonized by the Spanish. Yet they've, uh, you know, adopted the religious culture of most of the Philippines. Yet they've kept their traditional ways of kind of approaching. So a lot of times you, ha- you see people kind of praying to God, but they're also praying to like their local gods and amigo and, and all that, which is, it's really cool to see that. Um, and so, yeah, so we, the the style is really, we even when we were shooting just my stuff, as much as possible, we would always try to get as much interviews as possible, but sometimes it wasn't possible. Um, so the style of how we tell stories is still there, but without me in, in the equation. Um, earlier this way, year, we also did a video on Pacascas, which is a, a nipa sugar that's virtually extinct. It's only from one island in Batangas. It's called Isla Verde. When we shot that, the guy was very good at what he did. He just couldn't explain it. Um, so we decided to just shoot it in silence. Um, and if you watch that video, not one word is spoken. And it's not even voiceover. It's all subtitles. And the video did extremely well. So we're like, okay, cool. So because it's online, because we don't have formats to follow, we can be as uh, creative as possible. But what's important is at the end of the day, you're telling a story that has value. Okay, Erwan, you're, you're a product of two cultures, the French culture and Filipino culture. Of course, France, as particular Paris, uh, you know, you said you, you went to school in Paris, you worked in Paris. It's the culinary capital of the world. Everyone knows French food. It's had a huge impact on world uh, culinary cultures, etc. As opposed to Filipino food, for the longest time, it was one of the more obscure culinary traditions. No, And when you talk about it and how interesting and, and great it is, uh, you, you wonder why not more people around the world are into it. Uh, and why there aren't more Filipino restaurants overseas? You work in Paris. You might have a perspective on this. Uh, you know, uh, why why is Filipino food comparatively underappreciated? I think it comes down to information. Um, you look at French cuisine in general. I could name you hundreds of books, or even just one book that you could read that could tell you the full culinary history of France. You can communicate that information so easily. It's very understand. It's very easy for people who are outside your culture to understand your food and then want to consume it and want to try it. Right? Filipino food in general is just very confusing. Um, even for Filipinos who are in the Philippines, there's always a lot of fights about what is the proper terminology, what are the proper ingredients, who can claim what provinces can claim what. One of the reasons why we, why we do what we do, I've had so many conversations with people and I ask them, have you ever tried a beef sinina? And they're like, what is that? Have you ever tried book book? 
what is that? And 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 these are people who, when I ask them, do you love Filipino food? They say, yeah, I love Filipino food. I eat it every day. But there are certain aspects of it you have no idea about. Whereas if you're in France and you ask someone, have you tried a cassoulet, confit de canard, or uh, canard orange? Everyone knows these dishes like the back of their head, right? So it really comes down to education and information. And I think we're slowly now figuring that out. Like you brought up uh, the game. I can walk the street today and ask 50 people how many of them actually read the game. I'd be surprised if it were more than two or three people because we haven't really studied Filipino food that much. And it's not common to kind of study it uh, in length. And that's one of the reasons why we put up feature was to really try to not to fix that, but try to, you know, be part of the conversation or, or start the conversation about Filipino food, show people the variety, hopefully inspire certain chefs or restaurateurs to look into certain facets of the Filipino food uh, more and start serving that in their restaurants and their bars and have the consumers be educated to be able to choose those things when they see it on menus, right? That's how you start kind of this snowball thing. You need people who make it, you need people who eat it. Um, and that only happens if both of them understand it. Um, and I think through the videos that we do or through all the work that's done by other food historians or food, you know, food writers and things like that, um, eventually we will get there. But as a country, we first have to know our food a bit more intimately and not fight about it all the time. Like, and I feel like people here fight about food all the time. Oh, you know, we have tamales and Kavita's like, well, we have tamales too. Um, Samar has tamales and then Kezon has tamales and they're all fighting on who makes the right one game. Where you, where you have to kind of come to a point and be like, hey, can we all agree that we're right? It's just that this is the tamales of Pampanga and that's the tamales of Cavite. This is the adobo of Biko. This is, you know, and it has to come to that. Uh, one, one of my favorite accounts to follow is this Instagram account called Localpedia. Um, and he does like, uh, he takes pictures of really heirloom ingredients and processes all over the Philippines and does a lot of good on-ground work. Um, and he was in Western Visayas. He took a picture of a dish called puso, which is similar to the Cebuana puso, except the puso in where he was, I think it was Capiz, um, was steamed or boiled in tuba or nipa wine, something like that. Whereas if you look at it, it looks exactly the same as the puso from Cebu, which is um, the rice that's wrapped right in leaves. And it looks exactly the same. And when he posted about the puso in Capiz, all the Cebuanos came to his page and said, that is not puso, that's not how you make it, everything. Be like, can we just agree that it's the puso from that area, right? So it's, and the Cebuanos, at, it, they're not at fault either because it was the first time they heard about this other place making it, right? So it's it's people really need to get educated about Filipino food and, and ourselves included, right? And that's why we do these videos. Well, you know, speaking of fighting over food and actually getting, getting emotional, no, I mean, you mentioned this, Puso, no, but you you did a piece on taho once, and it elicited strong emotions, uh, which I found a bit hilarious. But people were really serious about this, no. Uh, but <laughs> I found it kind of absurd. But at the same time, it was revealing about how people take this stuff seriously, right? But anyway, I I wanted to hear your perspective on this, just in a nutshell. What was that about? I don't know if they were really invested in what taho is. Right, because there have been other there's recipes in the internet that ask, that tell you to make taho using tofu bought in the supermarket, which is not taho. Taho is not made from tofu. It's it's a whole other thing. It's its own it's its own process. 
it's kind of like tofu, but it's, it's a soybean curd, but it's not tofu, right? Uh, no one would ever get mad about that, right? So me, people got mad because he basically undercooked the sago pearls. But I think it wasn't about the dish. It was just, I think people were looking for an excuse to hate me. Back then, it kind of, yeah, got under my skin. But now, because, you know, I'm 36 and, and I'm, I'm a bit more mature. And this this actually really affected how I told stories. Because I am half French, like you mentioned, I'm half Filipino. Even though I live the majority of my life in the Philippines, I do come from a place of privilege. You know, my dad did very well for himself. He came from an, a very... Uh, you know, a very tough background in France. So then my mom, my mom came from a very tough background in, in the Philippines. Um, but my dad was a self-made man. He did a, a really great job in kind of uplifting himself and our family as well. But I was born with that silver spoon in my mouth. Um, and I think people don't like that. They don't like the fact that, you know, I'm dating Ann Curtis. Um, I'm privileged um, and all that. It's a social media culture. You want someone that you see that's popular and you kind of want to bring them down a, a few pegs. So I think when that whole kind of hit, it's just people didn't like me and they wanted to put me down, which was fine. Um, I took it in strides, but it, it really helped me in terms of my storytelling and making sure that when we approach stories, I try to remove as much as my, of my biases as possible. And we look at the story plainly and then we, we, we figure out how to attack it. <laughs> okay. So it was more than just the whole, okay. I, I understand that too. Uh, you know, it's it's the whole it's the whole social media culture we have now. But you know, another another champion of of Filipino cuisine, uh, uh, Anthony Bourdain. You no, know? um, when he was asked uh, what Filipino dish he would recommend to like a newbie to, to someone who doesn't really know Filipino food, never tasted it, a non-Filipino, he said sisig. You no, know? Doreen Fernandez, the author whom we also talked about. She would recommend sinigang as kind of the classic uh, Filipino dish and flavor. No, I don't want to put you on the spot here. No, but maybe you've you've also thought about this. What what would you answer to that? Like somebody from you know a province in France, what should be their first taste of Filipino food? It would be three things. I can't I can't give you one. It would be three things that are usually eaten together, um, and that's why I kind of put them together. Um, I think kinilaw would be one in today's environment. Crudo raw fish is very trendy. Uh, Kinilao has a, a huge backstory. It's actually said that Kinilao predates ceviche, apparently. Uh, ceviche is obviously raw fish cured in citrus. Kinilao is cured in vinegar. And so they say curing in vinegar was a process that was available way before Spanish colonization and all that, which is why I like it. Um, it also it shows off the bounty of the sea and everything that we have, which a lot of countries don't have, tropical fish. Um, so I think that's great. Usually that's had with a lato salad. So when people talk about Filipino food being brown and boring, something like a seaweed salad with that's texturized with, I've seen it done with toasted rice, pini pig. I've seen it done with like peanuts and ground peanuts and can be absolutely beautiful. Um, and that would be very kind of, uh, and it tastes, and it doesn't taste weird. Seaweed, it doesn't taste weird at all, and it, it usually has a nice citrus dressing. Um, and the third would be kulowo. So usually, when you're at the beach, right, you have your grilled eggplants, um, or you have like an ensalada and You have a uh, eggplant salad that's served with your budo fight. 
Um, and so Kula Wall for me is one of those things, again, that showcases subtlety and diversity. And it's the it's a dish from Laguna and Quezon mostly, uh, where your enzalanang talong is made with a coconut milk, but the coconut milk was toasted uh, before being made. So you have a really nice smokiness to the coconut milk, but then it's served cold with the, the mashed eggplants. It's, it's beautiful. So yeah, it's three dishes, but they are usually served together so it makes sense and they're usually served at the beach which i think is our our best showcase <laughs> wow great recommendations uh, it gives me ideas too about what to group together <laughs> in a meal right anyway i just want to pivot a little bit since you did mention you know our celebrity driven culture and and i'm sure you're you're kind of sick of being asked about this but you you've actually addressed this in in a previous interview where you know you travel around and sometimes people you know Point to you, or you know, refer to you as Asawani Ann, no Ann Curtis, no, uh, and it kind of delighted in one place. I think it was Baler Aurora, where people actually knew your name. How do you handle that fame, and how do you feel about that? Um, so strangely enough, you, it it becomes your new normal, right? Because I mean, I've been doing this for twelve years, so you kind of get used to it um, because you know you're so exposed to it. You know, and, and I think it's 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 always a great thing for people to know who you are. Um, what we try to convince people is is not just to know who we are, but also what we do. Um, you know, for the longest time, people who knew me because one, I was I was Anne's uh, husband, but also um, people would say, "Oh, you're an artista, you're an actor, you're a singer, you're a model," and I'd be like, "I'm actually none of those things." When people kind of take pictures of me, we, we always kind of make fun of it. We're like, oh, how do, how do you know me? Um, and if it's like, so in the end, that's, I find that hilarious because I'm like, okay, I, I totally get that. Um, but if it's someone saying, oh, I saw you in a movie once, we kind of chuckle. We're like, yeah, sure. Yeah, that one movie I made. Um, and so we always try to kind of tell people, we're like, yeah, you know, have a look at what we do online. Because um, at the end of the day, we, you know, we try to create videos for everyone, right? So, so we hope that. Uh, aside from you know taking pictures of me, people kind of watch the videos, kind of see the the value that we're trying to create as well. Okay, you've also mentioned that um, you know sometimes your name is misspelled or mispronounced. You no, know, I I searched Erwan, uh, and you're the only Erwan that comes up. I know there might be others uh, in the world, but you're like the first hundred search items. Where did Erwan your your first name come from? So Erwan, funnily enough, is a is a very quote unquote. It's on a, a a used name. It's like a very rare name, um, but it's a traditional Breton name. So my dad's from a west, the west coast of France, which is called Brittany. Um, it is a Gaelic influenced area. Um, for the longest time, they had a huge separatist movement. So we've always wanted to break away from Paris. And Erwan is uh, is a Celtic name. Um, its French translation is Eve. So Eve uh, Ives would be the actual name. Erwan is the Celtic uh, way of saying it. Um, and it basically means, it, be, it means the just man. That's what it means. Um, but strangely enough, it's also really popular in Indonesia with a lot of uh, Muslim people down there. Um, I've met a few Erwans down there. And I probably met more Erwans in Indonesia than I did in France. It's but just, I didn't know that Erwan is a French name in, in, in its basis. So I actually don't know how many, why... It became so popular in Indonesia. Um, maybe that's a documentary to do because it's it's captivating. Um, and yeah, so even like my last name, Basaf, um, 
Besap is the French translation of a Gaelic term, which is Wesson. Uh, Wesson is a tiny island off the coast of Brittany, where my family is traditionally from. Um, so our last names means means from the island of Wesson. Besap. But you know, in a previous interview, you you mentioned that when you're moving around, sometimes people are confused about not just who you are, but what you are, you no, know, because of how you look and and speak. And I noticed in your one of your bios, you listed as the languages that that you're proficient in French, Russian, Spanish, English, of course. But you didn't mention Filipino. I'm, am I assuming that you don't speak Filipino? I've heard you kind of converse a little bit with market vendors, but you didn't bother to list that down as one of your languages. I think because I'm not going to claim to speak Filipino because then people will jump at me and say you don't speak Tagalog. So I, I had to learn Russia, Russian before uh, when I was based in Russia. So I, I, I spoke enough Russian to kind of get me around uh, the workplace. My Russian now is, is quite rusty. Um, my Spanish is still fairly good. Um, and obviously my English and my French. Um, so Tagalog, I understand maybe 90% of what is said to me. Um, I just have a very hard time putting words and sentences together um, simply because I was never taught the language. So I was formally taught French. I was formally taught English. I was formally taught Russian. I was formally taught Spanish. But for, for some reason, I was never formally taught Tagalog. And I always tell my mom, why? <laughs> like, that's a bait of my existence. Um, and that's something that I know with my daughter, I'm not going to make that mistake. To put her in like at least have her take tagalog classes i hire a lot of kids from some of the biggest universities in the philippines and a lot of their tagalog isn't what we would consider deep tagalog i actually find it funny that there's two types right there's a regular tagalog and deep tagalog um so yeah so i i think it, it's a thing here in the country where you're kind of you're supposed to learn on the go but i you know as a kid if i was already learning spanish french and english how do you add another language to that. Um, so it is something I'm, I'm, I'm consciously making an effort on right now. Um, I am taking classes. Everyone in my team knows that they should talk to me in Tagalog. And as much as possible, I try to express myself in Tagalog to them as well. Um, so hopefully, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of old now, but hopefully in a couple of, I don't know, a year or two, I should be a bit more fluent when it comes to talking to people. So the world is now full of uh, you know, people of mixed races, you know, like yourself, or third culture kids. How do you identify now? Because in your spiels, your narration, you use the word we, and then which assumes that, you know, we Filipinos, right? But how would you answer that question? You know, how, how do you identify? Very Filipino. I lived in France for a total of three and a half years. And even in that time, I would leave a lot. Um, so, I mean, my dad's French, obviously, I speak the language. I went to French school uh, in the Philippines. Um, but in terms of who I am, my passions, my beliefs and everything, I do think I'm very, very Filipino. Um, so that's why I use the word we, the good catch. Even when I was doing videos alone, I would always use the word we because I never felt that I was doing something alone. Even when I was, it was just me and a videographer, I would always use the word we because I would always think me and the videographer today, both of us, we are here. Um, and I remember working in the U.S. and they told me, stop using the word we, start using the word I. No one sees the video, the videographer, the cameraman. But I'm like, no, it doesn't make sense to me. So I stuck to it. Um, but then now when I talk about it, yeah, I talk when I say it, I, I assume it's we, the Filipinos. 
Um, and so, yeah, that's where I placed myself. And I think that's, I mean, this is where I, I, I married, you know, I, I fell in love with my wife. This is where we're making our child grow up. And so I really do see myself as, as mostly Filipino. I need to ask you because this is an issue for a lot of people as well. You've been quite open about your weight and diet journey. Let's put it that way. No, uh, you've said that you used to be 240 pounds. Uh, I, obviously that, that was a long time ago. It seems no. Uh, it's now Christmas season, it's eating season, uh, so many parties, so much eating, and weight gain and then weight loss will be on everyone's mind. What can you share about about this? Obviously, you've been quite successful at, you know, um, transforming yourself physically, uh, you know, achieving certain goals there. So what would you what will you share in terms of what to eat, what not to eat? I mean, uh, how, how can you enjoy the season without eating? all you want to eat. I try not to give health, food and health advice anymore, but I try to kind of ask people to come up with those solutions themselves. Because most of the time when you're doing something wrong, you know you're doing something wrong. So it's just, um, I always tell people, you know, if, if do, you, do you technically need to eat cake? No. Can you survive without cake? Yes. Does cake make you happy? Maybe. Um, so each time you're about to eat something, ask yourself, is this truly worth it? Um, will I truly enjoy this? Or can I skip this and save calories for something else? Um, there are always times in the year where people need to be able to relax and eat and be with their friends and drink alcohol if they want to. And if you want to do that just during the holidays, then that's fine. Just know that when you hit uh, the week after, you have to kind of get back on track and you know, the, the best way nowadays, especially is, is food has become entertainment. We're a huge contributor to that. You know, that's kind of like the, the dichotomy that I live in all the time. We contribute to food entertainment, but when people eat at home, I always tell them to look at food as sustenance. So only eat the amount that you need to go, go through your day and go through your activities. Um, and a lot of us are all most of us are overeating. If, if, I mean, if you're eating regularly and you can afford to eat properly three meals a day, a lot of the times we tend to overeat. So it's kind of looking at that food and saying, do I know exactly what I'm putting in my body and in what quantities should I have it? And try to eat food you can understand. When you, when you eat a bag of chips and you look at the ingredients in the bag of chips, do you understand those ingredients? Probably not. But if you were to eat a banana, do you understand the banana? Yes. So I always tell people, like your ingredients should have one name. If they have more than one name, a lot of the times it's complicated. That's a great way to end. We want to thank you for um, opening our eyes and our world to the cultural riches of the Philippines. Mabuhay ka, Erwan Yusuf, food documentarist extraordinaire and 2023 James Beard awardee. Maraming maraming salamat. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Thanks for listening, Podmates. Download this episode so you can listen to it anytime, anywhere. Stay safe, Podmates. <laughs>